Well, good morning. I'm so glad that Pastor invited me to come this day and experience what we just experienced. I guess we could close in prayer and go home. We've all worshiped already. And so um, what, a, what an exciting morning it's been. <clears throat> uh, I want to talk this morning about uh, a parable of Jesus that probably is familiar to you. So if you want to turn to Luke chapter 15, I want to read the story and then we'll talk about the story in maybe a little different way than you're used to. So you can either follow the screen or you can follow your Bible. Now tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus. This made the Pharisees and the teachers of the religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of the estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide the wealth between his sons. A few days later, his younger son packed up all his belongings and moved to a distant land, and there he wasted all his money. Again, uh, about that time, about the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him and the man sent him out into the fields to feed pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have enough food to spare, and I'm I'm out here dying of hunger. I will go home to my father, and I'll say, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you. I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned uh, against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But his father said to the servants, quick, bring my finest robe in the house and put it on him, and get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet, and kill the calf we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast, for this son of mine was dead, and now has returned to life. He was lost. And now, he was, and now he is found. So let the party begin. Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house, and he asked one of the servants what was going on. Your brother is back, he was told, and your father has killed the fatted calf. We are celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him, but he replied, all these years I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to do. And in all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours comes back from squandering your, uh, your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by uh, killing the fatted calf. His father said to him, look, dear son, you have always stayed by me and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day for this brother, uh, for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost and now he is found. Whoops, did that first service. So the first thing we have to ask ourselves is what is a parable? 
Now, our Sunday school definition that we all learned was, where am I at? A parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Perhaps you've heard that. Well, that's close, okay? It it, it suffices um, a bit. But modern day uh, New Testament theology or New Testament scholars suggest that a parable has only one main point. So when Jesus tells a parable, he's trying to respond to one thing. So what's the main point of this parable? Well, let's begin by asking, who's the primary figure in the story? Well, it's not the prodigal. We would assume it was a prodigal, but it's not the prodigal. It's certainly not the older son. The The main character of the story is the father. So what Jesus is trying to teach in this parable is, what is God like? This parable begins with Jesus, who does his ministry on the north and west side of the Sea of Galilee. And he's, he's going to travel down from this area all the way down what's called the Rift Valley or the Jordan Valley. It's the longest geological rift on the face of the earth. Goes, starts way up in in what used to be the USSR, goes all the way down to northern Africa. And this is a geological rift in the earth's surface. He comes down the Rift Valley, comes to Jericho, and then travels up to Jerusalem. On his way, he stops in some some, uh, villages and Uh, the crowds begin to come around. He begins to teach them, but the Pharisees are there as well, and they begin to question him because he's hanging out with sinners. So the origin of the the parable is one of these encounters uh, with the Pharisees. Now, this is perhaps the second best-known parable that Jesus taught. Uh, What's the best-known one? Pastor knows. What is it? No. Good Samaritan. Probably the best known parable is the Good Samaritan. This perhaps is the second best known parable that Jesus taught. Now sometimes when we have a parable or a story that everybody knows, it's difficult to preach on it because you struggle to come up with some new insight. Uh, ask any pastor what the two most difficult to, uh, uh, sermons to preach in a year is, uh, are, and it's Christmas and Easter, because everybody knows the story. So how do you present the Christmas story in a new way, in a way that captures attention <clears throat> or maybe gives a challenge they've never thought of before? Very challenging for the pastor. I'm sure your pastor does a good job at that. So as we look at this parable, I want to look at the parable in a new way, perhaps a way you've never thought of before. I want to go back to the first century, and I want to think, I want us to think like a first century Middle Eastern Palestinian Jew. So I want us to hear the parable just like those who listened to Jesus tell it, heard it. So that's our challenge this morning. To do that, we first of all have to talk about inheritance. So in the story, verse 12 says, uh, the younger son comes to his father and asks for his inheritance. Now you probably 
have driven down the freeway and you pass one of these huge motor homes pulling a Jeep, a Jeep attached to the bumper. And as you go by, you see on the bumper, the bumper sticker on the back of the, uh, the RV, I'm spending my children's inheritance. <laughs> and we laugh because it's not their inheritance. It's our money. It doesn't become theirs until after we're gone. So even in, even in our 21st century Western concept, the question the young, younger son asks is totally inappropriate. But in the Middle East, it's even more severe. You see, in the Middle East, when a son asks for his inheritance before the father's gone, it's like looking at the father and say, you no longer exist for me. I wish you were dead. I have a friend in Israel who had to physically restrain a father from killing himself because his son asked for his share of the inheritance. So this is an important thing there. This is serious in their, in, in their understandings. So <clears throat> this father, however, this father doesn't commit suicide. This father divides his property. So what could the younger son expect to get from his inheritance? Well, in, Deuteron uh, in um, Deuteronomy 21, verse 17, uh, it says, the father must recognize the rights of the oldest son by giving him a double portion. So the older son gets two-thirds of the estate. All the rest of the sons share the last third. Sorry, ladies, you don't get anything. <laughs> You're expected to marry someone else's oldest son. <laughs> so he takes his share of his inheritance, a third of dad's estate, and he goes to a distant country. Now, we need a little geography lesson if we're going to understand the parable in its setting. First of all, Mount Hermon is way up here in the north. The, uh, the melting snow comes off of Mount Hermon, enters the, the Jordan River, flows all the way down into the north end of the Sea of Galilee, and then out the south end and all the way to the Dead Sea. The Jordan River becomes the dividing line between God's chosen people on the west side of the lake and the Gentiles on the east side of the lake. In fact, the gospel writers actually have a proper name for this side of the lake. Now, in your Bibles, it uh, doesn't appear as a proper name. It actually has small, small letters instead of caps, but it's called the other side. You remember Jesus got in a boat and he looked at his disciples, he says, let's go to the other side. And they all looked at him and said, somebody better tell him. We don't go to the other side. On the way to the other side, a storm comes up and tries to stop him from coming. Remember? And he stills the storm. Then he gets to the other side and as soon as he steps out of the boat onto the land, on this side of the lake, a man full of demons comes running out of the cemetery. Remember the story? On this side, life is kosher. They worship Yahweh. On this side, everything's non-kosher. In fact, it's full of demons. On this side, you become unclean if you walk through a cemetery. On this side, they're living in the cemetery. So you couldn't have any more completely opposites. 
than we find on either side of the Jordan River. So the young man doesn't have to go far to go to a far country. All he has to do is cross the Jordan River, and he's there. And this country is distant in philosophy, in values, and in religion. This is the area called the Decapolis. Deca, the Greek word for 10. Polis is the Greek word for city. This is the area where the 10 Greek cities exist. Now, in, the, in the, uh, all 10 cities, there are two things that really reflect the, um, the, Roman, uh, the, the Roman system. First is that every city has a hippodrome. A hippodrome is a huge, long stadium where they hold chariot races or horse races. Remember the movie Ben-Hur? That was a hippodrome. Every city had a hippodrome. It's the perfect place to gamble and lose your inheritance. Every city also had a temple, and in the, or, or a, a theater. And in this theater, um, they, they did plays, both Greek and Roman plays, that elevated the Roman pantheon, the gods of the Romans. So the values in the religious structure are totally different. The, um, the question of maintaining purity when mingled with uh, Gentiles that was always a problem for the Jews. In fact, ever since uh, Alexander the Great in 400 BC comes, comes through and conquers the territory, bringing with him the Greek culture, the Jews struggled with how do we live among this culture. Not a great deal different than we have to ask ourselves, how do we as believers live in our culture? Uh, we see our culture changing. What's the place we have in our culture? In fact, a popular discussion in the rabbinic writings was, was it okay for a, a young Jewish man to fasten the strap on his sandal when he's passing a pagan idol? Can he retain his Jewishness? In other words, could he pass the idol, kneel down, adjust the strap on his sandal? He's only adjusting his strap, but everybody assumes he's bowing before the God. And get up and walk away and still retain his Jewishness. Well, <clears throat> This is where the young man comes. He comes to an area totally different from what he grew up in. Everything is new. What they, what they value is new, what they teach is new, and he spends all his money, he loses his money, and then a drought comes. Now, I talked about the, the, the um, water, the snow melting and coming from Mount Hermon down into the Sea of Galilee. Uh, Mount Hermon is 9,000 feet above sea level. The sea of Galilee is 700 feet below sea level. So the water off, uh, coming down, the melted, the melted snow coming down often floods the, the Jordan River and it goes out over its banks and all of that land becomes fertile. You go to Israel today, you see lots of fields growing crops. Even in the first century, uh, grains were grown. This became a very fertile area. However, remember this side of the lake? On this side of the lake, when you get to the east side of the lake, the mountains immediately go up 3,000 feet. 
So as the rain comes from the west across the Mediterranean, across the Jezreel Valley, across the Sea of Galilee, it dumps all of its moisture. By the time it hits that wall of mountains, the moisture's gone, and it's not uncommon to have a drought on the Golan Heights or the Decapolis. They often would have droughts, lead to famines, and that's where this young man finds himself. His money's gone, the famine has come, nobody, the text says nobody took care of him, and so what did he do? He um, hires himself out to a pig farmer. Not exactly the best job for a young Jewish boy. And then the verse, perhaps the best verse in the entire story. He comes to his senses. Now in a congregation this size, there likely is a mother and a dad and a grandpa and a grandma who have their own prodigal. And every morning you pray this prayer. May, he, may they come to their senses and come home. So the young man comes to his senses and he decides to go home, so he creates a plan. So what is his plan? He said, I'll go back to my father and I'll say, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you. I, <clears throat> I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Take me on as one of your hired men. But why does he have to have a plan? Why not just go home and say, Dad, I'm back. I'll live in the basement. Well, there's a reason because this young man knew Torah. He knew the law and he knew in Deuteronomy, or in uh, Deuteronomy 21, that it says this. Suppose a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey his father or mother even though they discipline him. In such a case, the father and mother must take the son to the elders who, as they hold court at the city gate. The parents must say to the elder, elders, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious and refuses to obey. He's a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the town must stone him to death. In this way, you will purge the evil from among you and all Israel will hear about it. It's popular today to, uh, among the church to talk about whether we as New Testament churches are, are obligated to the Old Testament law. And many will say, of course we are. I mean, we're Christians, New Testament, Old Testament, doesn't matter. Um, until we realize none of us have stoned our kids. Now, don't raise your hand. But some of your kids deserved it. So, so he has to have a plan and the only plan he can have is not to be a son anymore. So he returns home and notice the father's response in verse 20. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, he embraced him, and he kissed him. Now think about it for a minute. The last time this father saw this son, his son looked him in the eye and said, I wish you were dead. He's taken his father's money. He's gone to another country and he lost it all. 
He not once gave any, showed any concern for his father or his brother. And now he comes home and he smells like hogs. But this father is different. This father sees him coming. He runs down the road, throws his arms around him, and kisses him on that dirty cheek. This is the only time in Scripture when God is presented as running. You see, God runs when a wayward son or daughter comes home. And he'll run to you. And then in verses 22 and 23, the father gives gifts, four gifts to his son. The first is, he says, quick, bring my best robe. Now, every Jewish man had a prayer shawl or a talit, a robe that he wore all the time, even over his, uh, uh, over his um, daily clothes. Now, most of them had more than one talit, more than one, we'll talk about this tomorrow night, um, more than one prayer shawl. But the Shabbat prayer shawl, the one that was saved for, for, for Shabbat, for, for Sabbath, was always the best robe. And so the father gives his best robe to his son. Tomorrow night we'll talk more about the, that, that talit. But for this story, the most important thing is the best Shabbat talit always became a part of the oldest son's inheritance. And this father gives it to his younger son. And in so doing, he symbolizes the, the fact that he's welcoming his son back into the family. Also, he puts a ring on his finger. Now, a ring was important in the first century. Uh, every wealthy person had a ring. And this ring was a symbol of ownership. It was this ring that the father would emboss legal documents. They'd pour the wax and he'd, or the, the clay and he'd push his, his ring into the clay, go to the marketplace, he'd make purchases and he'd, he'd seal the, the bill of sale with his ring. So here's a son who's taken his third of the inheritance, he's gone to another country, he's spent it all, and he comes back and dad hands him the family credit card. The third thing that the father gives him is sandals. You see, in the first century, the only people who went barefoot were servants. And this father says, no son of mine will ever be a servant again. And then finally, he kills the fatted calf. <clears throat> there, are, there were two times in the first century when Jews ate meat. The first was at Passover. And what did they eat at Passover? Lamb. The second was at a wedding. What did they eat at a wedding? Veal. So when he kills the fatted calf, he's symbolically marrying his son back into the family. There's a second uh, understanding, uh, but, to, uh, but, but to explain it, I need to back up just a bit and talk about the written law. So we're all familiar with Torah. Torah is the written law. Uh, it's found in the first five books of the Old Testament, what we call the books of Moses. And they center around what we call the Ten Commandments. 
And uh, even, in the old, even in the Torah, uh, those Ten Commandments tend to be expanded a little bit. Just read Deuteronomy. Okay? So, in the first century, the, the, rabbis, the rabbis had um, uh, students. They would collect students, and they would teach Torah to their students. Only, they discovered God wasn't very clear in the Ten Commandments. You see, he said things like, thou shalt not kill. Any hunters here? Fishermen? I can't swat a mosquito. And since God wasn't very clear, the rabbis decided they needed to clarify that, and they built a hedge around the Torah, their word. And these laws that they created for their students hedged the law. If you keep these rules, you'll not break God's rule. This became known as halakha. So we have Torah and halakha. You have the written law, you have the oral law. In fact, in 200 AD, long after the uh, the ministry of Jesus, a rabbi in northern Galilee uh, collected all of these rabbinic rules and he categorized them and he put... um, uh, he had uh, dietary laws, uh, he had Shabbat laws, he had, so I think there are seven or eight categories. He categorized all of these laws, became known as Mishnah. Have you heard that word? So Mishnah is the collection of these rabbis' oral laws. That's what the Jews live by today. We don't, we don't have biblical Judaism today. We have rabbinic Judaism. In fact, um, I, I read a book by a, by a rabbi who, who grew up uh, in the system, and he said, every time I'd ask a question to my rabbi, I'd say, well, the text says this, and you're telling us this. And the rabbi looked at him and said, every time that Mishnah disagrees with the biblical text, you accept Mishnah because the rabbis had more wisdom than you do, and this is what they determined. So today, when the Jews go to their synagogues and they study all day, the Orthodox, they're studying Mishnah. So, so uh, as a part of this hedge, this halakha, this oral tradition that, that grew around the Ten Commandments, um, some of these laws went into the social area relationship area. And so uh, there's one law that relates to this story. So one Holocaust said this, to, to share a drink of water with someone was to make a friend for a year. In John chapter four, Jesus is going uh, up, up to, back to Galilee and he stops at a, at a um, well and a woman is drawing water, she's a Samaritan. He is a Jew. Jews and Samaritans don't get along. He looks at this Samaritan woman and he says, may I have a drink of water? And she looks at him and says, I'm a Samaritan, you're a Jew. Why do you want to be my friend? Now that's not what the text says, but that's exactly what it meant. <clears throat> the second part of the halakha was to offer a drink to someone Uh, a drink of water was to make a friend for a year, but to have a meal with someone 
was to make a friend for a lifetime. Jesus was passing through Jericho and the crowds became so immense that this little short tax collector couldn't get to Jesus. So he climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And as the Savior passed that way, he looked up in the tree together and he said, Zacchaeus, you come for I'm going to your house today. And the fact that this important rabbi would go to his house and want to be his friend for a lifetime broke his heart and he returned fourfold all the things he had stolen from the people. Another illustration comes from the last uh, Seder that Jesus had with his disciples. Um, uh, they, they always reclined at, um, uh, at the Seder, at, at the Passover. And so uh, the New Testament story tells us that John is reclined in front of Jesus and Judas is reclined behind Jesus. And Jesus takes his pita bread and he dips it into the relish bowl and he offers it to Judas. Are you my friend? Will you be my friend? And Judas gets up and leaves the dinner. My last illustration comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, Apostle Paul says, and on the last night, uh, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, take, all of you eat from it. So next Sunday, next Sunday when you celebrate the Lord's Supper and you take that, those elements in your hand, Jesus is sharing a meal with you and is telling you, I want to be your friend forever. Then the older son shows up. And we've always made the older son the villain. The bad guy in the story, every story has to have a bad guy. The bad guy in this story is the older brother. He comes, and in verse 28, he refuses to go in the house. <clears throat> so the father comes out to him, and he, uh, the brother changes the relationship. He's no longer my brother. He's your son. But the father refuses to disown him. And this father refuses to exclude the older son. He welcomes him to come in. You see... The older son is also in a distant country. He just doesn't know it. So how can we apply this? Well, to summarize, first of all, the um, parable is teaching what God is like. Uh, in America, American seminaries, um, and I, I can't say all because I've not seen all, but many or most seminaries uh, have a course called uh, systematic theology. Pastor had to take it, I had to take it, most pastors I know had to take a course called systematic theology. Well, what's systematic theology? It's when they start at uh, Genesis 1-1, they go through Revelation 22, and every time they come across a verse about God, they put it in the God column and then the Jesus column, and then the Holy Spirit column, and then sin column, and the salvation column, and the church column, and so you get the idea? When they're done, 
They go back to each column and they look at the verses in that column and they say, what is God like? Oh, God is spirit, God is love. God, sound familiar? He also has some, some uh, uh, characteristics like he's omnipotent, he's omnipotent, he's omnipresent. Remember those big words? That all comes from the column in systematic theology. Jesus never would have known anything about systematic theology. Because you see, the Eastern mind, the Middle Eastern mind, says God is like what God has done. So when, when the children of Israel had an experience with God, they stacked rocks up so the next time they came by, they could remember what God had done there. They celebrate the feasts every year so they can remember what God has done for their ancestors because if he could do it for them, he can do it for us because he's like what, God is like what God has done. But this father changed the rules. You see, every person who was listening to Jesus' parable related to the oldest son because the oldest son is representing the social structure of the day. Because what the younger son did made, made him uh, leave the family. In their understanding, he's no, longer a part of, he's no longer a part of the family. In fact, today, if an orthodox, uh, if the son or a daughter of an orthodox family accepts Yeshua as their Messiah, the family holds a funeral. In our mind, you're dead. You no longer belong to our family. But this father changed the rules. So two ways we can approach this parable. Perhaps you're here today, you came to watch uh, a nephew be baptized, you came to, to support a family, you came as a visitor, um, and you look at your life and you realize you're living in a distant country. You've already squandered all the things that God offers you in Jesus, and you're eating with the pigs. Our, cultural, our culture has drawn you to it. You're starting to think like the things you see on TV. Your attitudes toward people are what the culture tells you they should be. And you've moved to a distant country and you need to come home. Or perhaps you never left. You've remained here. Actually, you attended church. Maybe you even participate in church. Serve on a committee, teach Sunday school, sing at a worship team, be in a prayer group. But you become so complacent in your walk with Christ that it's as if you're not a part of the family anymore. And you know what? God is here this morning waiting for you to move to him so that he can run down the aisle and embrace you in his arms and welcome you home. 
But the next move is yours. How do we do this? We do the same thing the prodigal did. We go to our father and we say, I've sinned and I, uh, against heaven and against you. We call that confession. I'm no, longer, uh, I, I'm, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. We call that repentance. And then make me your hired servant is called surrender. I don't hear about surrender much in the church anymore. When I was growing up, every altar called talked about surrendering your desires, your wishes, your hopes to the Father who, ha- who will fill all of those for you. I don't hear much about that. I hear very little in churches encouraging young people to even consider full-time service for Jesus. Be a pastor, be a missionary. What happened to surrender? But until you surrender, God can't use you. Years and years ago, because of an experience I had with Jesus, I coined the phrase, God never uses what he hasn't first broken. So what are you going to do this morning? We're going to pray, and then the altars will be here. If you'd like to come and just talk this over with the Father, he's waiting for you. If there's something you need to, um, to confess, he'll forgive you. There will be some folks here who will willing to pray with you if you need someone to pray with you. But don't leave like you came in. Do an inventory of your life right now. Which brother do you relate to? What is God speaking to you about in your heart? He's here and willing to meet you. But the next move has to be yours. Now, Father, we come to you. And I thank you, Lord, that I thank you, first of all, for these young people and this, uh, this lady who committed themselves to you in baptism. How exciting. I thank you for new life in Christ. But some of us came this morning just to witness that baptism, and we've, we've discovered this morning that our complacency towards you requires that we move closer to you. Others in this place have realized they never even knew you in the first place. They know about you, but they don't know you. And so, Holy Spirit, you speak to their heart right this second and move them to come and find a relationship with you. For those of us living in complacency, grab our attention this morning. May this be the morning that all the complacency ends as we come to you and ask for forgiveness, ask you to fill us with your spirit. And for all of this, I thank you. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Amen.